Good tidings, everyone. This is Michael Gobier from the Hey! It's Enrico Palazzo Fantasy Baseball Podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 213, E.T., the Extraterrestrial Movie Review. McBrien along with Derek Myers and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. It's time once again though we go back to the 80s, uh, 1982 to be exact, with a movie that Derek nominated. We're going to be talking all about E.T., the extraterrestrial this episode, but before we do that, what is new in the world of pop culture for you this week, Derek? Hey, Chris. Uh, well, I got a couple of things. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first is a new movie that dropped on Netflix in the last week or so. It's called The Adam Project. Oh, I've heard of this, actually. I, so, I'm actually interested to watch it. I'm interested to hear about it. Tell me about it. Yeah, so it stars uh, Ryan Reynolds. Your boyfriend. And, um, he definitely. Well, your second boyfriend behind. He's, uh, he's up there on the list. Matt Damon. He takes the cake, of course. There you go. Yeah. Uh, also stars Mark Ruffalo and uh, Catherine Keener. Uh, oh, Jennifer I like Garner. Her. Oh, she's uh, so do I. Oh, and Jennifer Garner's got actress. a small part in it. There, there's a few faces you sort of go, oh, I think I know who that is. Um, Zoe Saldana's got a small part on it as well. Again, it's got some some strong, recognizable actors who are, have small parts, uh, which which is fine. It sort of gives the movie a little bit of extra credit, right? If they uh, if they can get some big names in it. But it's it's a Ryan Reynolds movie. Don't kid yourself. And he's playing. Shockingly, Ryan Reynolds, as he does in every as he does movie. in every film. Yeah, <laughs> and and spoiler alert, he does take his shirt off. But uh, I think that's a, I think it's in his contract that he has to take his shirt off in every movie. And and hey, if it's I like, look like him, it's like last week with Richard Gere, he always had to be naked yes. getting out of bed. Oh my my my! Yes, so. but believe me, if I look like Ryan Reynolds, I'd have it in my contract take my shirt to take off, my shirt off every movie as well. So, <laughs> uh, in any case, it's it's a time travel sci-fi adventure movie where. Um, Ryan Reynolds is from the future. He comes back to uh, this time that we're like 2020 ish and um, and has to try and stop bad things from happening. And there's reference. It's very um, self-aware in that it references pop culture. Like he talks about the Terminator and he talks about other movies that have time travel in it. And one of the things they do very well, and I've talked about this before, is sometimes in a movie, there's just this obvious question that's hanging there and it just eats away at me as a viewer where it's like, well, why is this happening or not happening? And you sort of, you lose focus on the movie while you're dwelling on a stupid, small little detail where one line of dialogue, oh, we've invented the blah, 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 which takes care of the X, Y, Z problem. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned and, this many times. Yes. And they did. And they did that in this movie. Oh, the right good. Way, where they talked about like, well, what about paradoxes and this and that? And they have like two lines of dialogue where they just say, this is happening because of this. And, and that's it. Once they say it, you just accept that, yes, this is how it's going to work. And the movie goes on. I'm like, perfect. You don't have to overthink it. You don't have to overanalyze it. They sort of address the elephant in the room in a way where they they 
acknowledge that it could be seen as a problem and they're just like don't worry about it hand wave here's two lines of dialogue let's move on but no it was good i enjoyed it it's it was a fun ride uh i watched it earlier this week my wife was watching it earlier tonight we both enjoyed it uh it's 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 relatively light fare it's um uh, part of the part of the premise of the movie is that Ryan Reynolds, when he comes back to the past, meets like his ten year old self, and so he's working with his ten year old self to, sol- to you know to have the little adventure. So there's a lot of fun back and forth that's played with that. Um, the young kid who they've cast, I didn't recognize him, but he was you know he did a pretty good job being a young Ryan Reynolds, I thought. And uh, no, it was decent. It, it and it wasn't that long either. It was like I think it was like an hour and forty five minutes. So that's that's good. Um, so anyway, I enjoyed it. I would certainly think, recommend checking could, it out. Could my kids watch it? Because my wife, I remember she when she saw it, she's like, well, I wonder if it'd be okay to, for us to watch with the boys. Yeah, I think so. Like, it's part of it is the message of, like, you know, children need to, uh, like, the relationship between the, the, the young Ryan Reynolds character and his parents. So that's a big part of it is the relationship and, and how when the relationship has problems, how you address that. So obviously that's not what the whole movie's about, but that's mm. definitely in there as part of the, you know, the takeaway. But, but you're saying he goes back in time and then interacts with his younger self? Yes. But that, yeah, that's where that, that breaks the rules of sci-fi. So that obviously... No, no, no. The they, have, they have two lines of dialogue yeah, in there that, to that, explain that, why that's a problem right. and that why it's sense. not a problem. So gotcha. no, it's quite... So yeah, anyway, I would say check it. It's on Netflix. Right. I mean, most of us have Netflix already. If you're looking for something that you haven't seen before, give it a try. You'll know within like 10 minutes if you're going to like it. I, I would guess it's rated the equivalent of like PG or PG-13. There's there's some mild... I, probably, I think there's some mild swearing. I don't remember any F-bombs. There's definitely no nudity other than Ryan Reynolds taking off his shirt. Um... There's some violence, but it's more of the equivalent of like video game violence. And I don't remember any real blood and gore. Like when the bad guys get shot by the futuristic weapons, they they d- d- get turned into dust, like sort of like the Thanos snap in the Marvel movies. So you don't have like blood and guts all over the place. So I, I think it'd be suitable for a younger audience. I think your kids would be fine with it. I rather I think your wife would be fine if your kids watched it. Mm-hmm. So so anyway, I watched that. And then for, first in a long time, I watched a documentary series. For 40 days and 40 nights, watch documentaries. He likes to learn about the world. It's Derek's Documentaries. Derek's Documentaries. Been a while since we heard that song. Yeah. Well, um, so there's one that I'm watching now that I didn't finish watching. It's also on Netflix. I'll talk about that next week, and I won't really get into it right now. But the one that I watched uh, over the past week is a new series on HBO. It's called One Perfect Shot. And what they do is they are interview. They're 30 minutes long. It's six episodes so far. They interview six different movie directors and they ask them to talk about the perfect shot from one of their movies. And it's, you know, so the first episode is with Patty Jenkins, who is best known for directing the recent Wonder Woman movies. And so she talks about the scene in the in the first Wonder Woman movie where she basically, uh, the, you know, the Wonder Woman character reveals herself as Wonder Woman during World War One. She steps out of the trenches and walks across the no man's land as this symbol of hope, this brining, bright shining star in an otherwise dark and desolate situation and how she's, you know, the, the, the power of change. And so it's this 20, 25 minute session where the director and and a couple other people who have worked behind the scenes on the on the movie talk about how they conceived it, what the challenges were to make it, why it was important to the movie, why they felt this was a pivotal, or in the case of the title of the series, a perfect shot for the movie, why it was so important, why it's gonna go down as the most memorable scene from their movie, if it's something that's more recent, or in the case of some of the other ones, the movies are 20 or 30 years old, and so it's already stood the test of time. Um, And then they do a little bit of, 
uh, video recreation, like with 3D modeling to, they don't, my only criticism of this series is they don't actually show the actual shot from the movie. And I'm wondering if that's probably because they couldn't get the exact rights to do it in this series through HBO, but they do recreate parts of it with 3D modeling and CGI, which is interesting enough, but, uh, Anyway, it was decent. Uh, if it's there's six episodes out already. I only had a chance to watch the first the first one, and the last one. So the first one was Wonder Woman with Patty Jenkins, and the last one was Heat with Michael Mann. And the scene in Heat is the final uh, bank robbery shootout scene uh, in the streets of Los Angeles. And if you uh, you know you know the movie, which I do, I love the movie. That is absolutely without a doubt the 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 perfect shot of the movie, the pinnacle shot. It's like the climax of everything. Um, there's also an episode, um, with, um, Aaron Sorkin where he's doing, um, uh, a few good men with, uh, Jack Nicholson, Tom Cruise, the courtroom scene where he, he interrogates Jack Nicholson on the stand. I haven't watched that one yet, but, uh, Rob Reiner directed it though, but yes. Yeah. Uh, Oh yes, he did. Yeah. Aaron Sorkin wrote it. I'm, you know what? I'm not sure if they interview Sorkin or Reiner or both. Mm, I both. thought I saw Aaron Sorkin's name on mm. it. But maybe it was they were just referencing him as the writer. Uh, anyway, I haven't watched that episode. That was on that. cable the other day, by the way. A yeah, few good men and I put it on. It. And I just got to say, like, man, I just watched part of it. That movie is so good. And also, like, super good. Tom Cruise, my God, he is just like one of the most beautiful human beings I've ever seen in that movie. That is a good looking dude in that movie. Uh, yeah, I mean, and it's a great movie. If you haven't seen it in a while, it's it's worth taking another look for sure. He's a good actor uh, too. I think. Yeah, I thought he was really good in that movie. So it was that, that movie is so. I forgot how good it was, and until I started watching it, I was like, "Holy smokes, this is really good." So, in, in any case, as I mentioned, it's um, it's on HBO. Uh, there are only six episodes out so far. They're about um, thirty minutes each, give or take. Uh, I suspect that they will do more. Um, yeah, you know what? I'm looking. Oh no, I'm sorry. I lied. It is Aaron Sorkin, but it's the, um, the, from his new movie or recent movie, the trial of the Chicago seven from 2020. Sorry. My uh, mistake. So I thought it was, oh. no, I, I, I mis mistook that. Yeah. Um, but in any case, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, if you're looking for just something to watch and you just have 20 or 30 minutes, like that's not bad. Check it out. Especially, I mean, wonder woman and heat as sort of the first and the last ones are huge movies. So uh, most people have seen it or at least familiar with it. These movies are all too new for me. I haven't seen any of them. That's for, But you said you have a documentary for next week as well. You're holding off on. Yeah. So we get the song again next week. So yeah. Good. Yeah. There's a brand new one. It just dropped on Netflix. I was watching it this afternoon. Nice. It's about an hour and a half. I only had time to watch about half of it. So I'll finish watching it uh, before next week. And you never know. I may watch a couple of more documentaries between now and then. We'll uh, we'll get back to it next week and find out. Nice. Uh, for me, my wife and I need your help, actually, with something. It's not you're not like a marriage counselor. Right? You have to worry with that. We need to get a new show to binge watch. So we just finished up Ozark, like the, the second half of the final season is coming out soon. But in the meantime, we're like, we got to watch something. So we started to watch Ru Russia doll or Russian doll or something. It was stupid season. The new season or the original one? Nah, I just I watched the first, the first episode. I watched the first episode. I'm like, I can't even watch this. It's so stupid. And then we started watching Yellowstone. I have heard nothing but good things about Yellowstone. And of course I fell asleep, you know, like five minutes into it or something like that. I, I legit have to stop listening to the hype. On some of these shows i was on twitter i remember and i heard all about how amazing succession is like like everyone's like oh season three of succession it's like, it's like the best season of any series in tv history and so i really was all in to watch and i committed to watching it and it sucked 
I, I have no idea why people like that dumb show. I mean, jeez. Oh, so I went I, out and bought season two of The Love Boat on DVD, Derek. And I just have to convince my wife to to watch it. So that's maybe where I need your help the most. You know, I'm, I'm just done with all this this garbage. So all the new well, stuff. I mean, I, I watched Succession and I love it. And I agree. I think it's great. And I think season three that just finished uh, a couple months ago was, was fantastic. I know it's a tough watch and it's not everybody's cup of tea. But uh, that is definitely one I would recommend to some people. Um, if you're looking for something, <laughs> uh, the only thing that immediately comes to mind, mm-hmm. if you're so, and you and I talked a little bit about this before we started the recording is there are some cases where a show only had one season or it might have two seasons, but the second season is something completely different. So like, for example, Fargo on FX, I think it's had like four or five seasons and each season is a 10 episode mini series. And each season that came after it has nothing to do with the one that came before it. They are completely self-contained, but they they all take place geographically in or near Fargo, and that's the commonality of the title. So it's like, are you looking for a show where it's like ER? It ran for 15 seasons, and it's just as long-running. Every episode continues into the next episode, or Grey's Anatomy, like something like that, where it's just long, many episodes over many years? Or are you okay with something that maybe had a shorter run or was only one or two seasons or had two seasons that have nothing to do with each other. Do you care? You just want quality. I'll tell you what I'm looking for. I'm looking for watching the love boat. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I just convince her to watch the love boat. Would you please, please. All right, here we go. Here's your dad joke of the week. I'm old. I'm a dad. I got to tell dad jokes. So I figured since we're reviewing um, E.T., the extraterrestrial this episode, that I do an E.T. dad joke for you this week. Okay, Derek. Okay. So, What's ET short for? Uh, I assume you're going for something other than the actual movie title, so I don't know. Because he's got little legs. What's ET short for? Mm-hmm. He's got little legs. No? No. <laughs> I got a phone you don't have a leg to stand on with that one, buddy. I got a phone home on that one. That's nothing but pure and simple communism. <laughs> oh, that sounds familiar. Hal Needham's futuristic masterpiece, Megaforce. With Chuck Norris? No, Barry Boswick and Michael Beck did all the heavy lifting in that one. I'm glad that happened to that guy. F him. I'm going to barbecue your ass in molasses. Thank you. The Southern NASCAR demographic. It's full of bigotry. It's full of racism. It's full yep. of sexism. There's no way you came from my loins. Hey, how cool is this? <laughs> what in the hell is this world coming to? So recently, we held another one of our pop culture fantasy drafts. It was in the year 1982. I picked an officer and a gentleman from that year, and that was our movie review that we did last episode. And this week, uh, it was over to you, Derek, and you decided to go with the Steven Spielberg classic, E.T., The Extraterrestrial. Surprisingly enough, over 200 episodes, and we've never even done that movie. So um, why don't you start things off? Um, You could have went with any movie at all from 1982. By the way, personally... I was really, really hoping that you would pick what I think is one of the best movies of all time, Zapped, with Scott Scott Baio and Willie Ames from 1982. Well, I mean, that was my personal pick in the movie draft, but I couldn't find a copy of it anywhere to stream, to rent, to download. Even to purchase was ridiculously expensive, so I I, I felt I needed to pass on that for now. Hmm. Maybe we'll come back to it one day. Maybe, maybe, That would be great. I yeah. something to look so forward to. I opted for E.T. Now, let me ask you this, Chris. Mm-hmm. Best guess. How many times in your life have you seen the movie E.T.? Like, give me a ballpark. 
You know, it's funny. You and I had a conversation about this a while ago about like how many times have you seen movies? I find it very difficult to wrap my head around that concept. Like, like I don't know how many times I've seen. Like, I think if 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 I I would take a guess at something, whether it's this movie or any movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark or Jaws or something. If I took a guess and I threw a number on the table, and if there was some way that magically some like someone followed me around my whole life and took you know uh, stock of every time that I watched a movie, I bet you the numbers would be a lot different than I think. But I mean, ET. So I I, I really have trouble trying to figure out how many times I've seen a movie. But ET. I mean, I saw it three times in the theater. That's for sure. Yep. And I watched it on the movie network, I'm sure, and on VHS multiple times. And I watched it with my kids. I watched it again this week. So, I mean, I've probably seen it 15 to 20 times. I was going to say more than 10? Yeah, more than 10 times. I more than say. 20? I don't know if I've seen it more than 20. Okay. So somewhere between 10 and 20. I'm guessing, you know, 15 maybe? Yeah. I, I think I'm probably around the same. I, I probably I'm closer to 20 than 15, but I I'd be shocked if it's more than 20 for me. And like you, I saw it at least three times in the theater, but you know what? Probably closer to four or five times in the theater. And as we talked about a little bit last week, it was released and then re-released in the theater when I was younger. And I was reading about it. It actually was in theaters in some form for, I think something like 13 or 14 months consecutively. Yeah. Like it was ridiculous. It was just that popular and that good. And people were continuing to go back to see it, um, myself included, even as a young kid. Um, so, yeah, definitely. I think 20 viewings is probably a fair guess. If I'm setting an over and underline, it's probably around 20. And honestly, though, I had hadn't actually watched it in probably 10 years before this week, which surprised me because I really, really, really forgot just how great this movie is and then i watched sat down to watch it this week and it was like all the nostalgia just flushed right over me and it was just like i was right back like like being a little kid in the movie theater at seven eight years old when it first came out like just so many memories of of the movie itself and of watching the movie as a little kid so i was really glad that we we got a chance to watch this movie but let me let me uh let me just tell you though so i have like i'm sure you have my mm-hmm. own personal copy of E.T. In fact, I have I it have, on DVD. Yeah, I have it on VHS and I have it on DVD. Actually, I have two copies of VHS. I have one that's in a giant white clamshell and then I have the special letterbox edition that came out a few years later. And then I also have it on DVD when they put out the in 2002, they put out the 20th anniversary E.T. DVD box set collection. And you know me, I'm a sucker for these kinds of things. So, of course, I bought it. I maybe even got it for Christmas. And in it, there are four discs. One of them is the movie soundtrack, the score by John Williams. It's a complete soundtrack. Perfect. One of them is a series of behind-the-scenes features and documentaries and interviews about the creation and the make. And it's like over an hour and a half or two hours worth of extra stuff. And believe me, if I'd had time, I would have watched some of that this week, but I, I didn't, unfortunately. But I do plan to watch it in the next week because I'm now that I've rewatched the movie, I want to see more of the behind the scenes stuff. Then there are two versions of the movie. There is the original 1982 version of the movie as it was released in the theater back in 1982. And then the fourth disc is the 2002 digitally altered remastered version of E.T., uh. which... I don't know if you remember this, but Steven Spielberg felt that after his friend George Lucas did such a good job of remastering, digitally altering Star Wars in the late 90s, that he would go back and do the same thing with E.T. Because yes, you know what E.T. needed? That. Digital enhancements. Of course. 
Yeah, because you know it wasn't the the highest grossing movie ever, uh, and so of course it could be improved upon. And he one of the biggest changes was there's a scene where uh, federal agents are trying to stop the kids from escaping with ET, and they have guns. And mm-hmm. so George or um, pardon me, Steven Spielberg digitally altered the guns to be walkie talkies because he didn't feel it was appropriate uh, that the that these adults would point guns at children. And you know what? Rightly or wrongly, sure, but. You didn't shoot it that way, dude. You're stuck with what you got. So in any case, four movie, four discs in the set. Soundtrack, behind the scenes feature, 82, uh, pardon me, the 82 version and the 2002 version. So I pull out the box set and it is caked with dust. Cause like I said, it's been 10 years since I watched this. And I open it up and there are only three discs in the set. The, ninth, the 1982, the original version of the movie, the disc is missing. Oh God, that's the best one. That's what I was like, oh, man, this is going to suck. I was so pumped up to watch it. I was like, oh, what am I going to do? And then I start. I spent like a half an hour looking for it because I'm like, I'm sure it's in. But I have a massive collection of DVDs. It probably you just got, yeah. it got doubled in with something else, I'm sure. But I'm like, I don't have time to look for it right now, I, I, although I tried. And I never found it. So I thought, fine, I'll watch the 2002 version. My stupid DVD player isn't backwards compatible and it wouldn't play a regular DVD. So I ended up having to stream it through Amazon anyway, after all of that. So it's like, I was just so bummed out. And then I went online and it said, Oh, the 2002 box set has since been discontinued because Steven Spielberg changed his mind and he doesn't want any copies of that 2002 or 2000. Yeah. 2002 digital remake to be in existence. So he pulled them all from the shelves and it's been discontinued. So I just find out that that box set is like a ridiculously valuable collectible and I'm missing one of the movies. I can't even resell it. So Anyway, that's that's my rant. It was nominated for like nine Academy Awards and it won like, you know, four of them. Um, let's the thing is, <clears throat> let's be honest. This is one of the most famous and beloved movies of all time. Oh, yeah. So so rather than like break the movie down scene by scene, which sometimes we do, I'd like to talk a little bit about what it was like back when this movie came out. You know, I think I can give a little bit of perspective on the movie. Oh, yeah, me too. For you sure. know, like from the point of someone who was, who was actually there. So I mentioned this briefly before on when we did our draft episode, but I want to go back in time just for a little bit. So back to the summer of 1982. So there was no internet, no social media, nothing. And you wanted to find out about what people, you know, thought of pop culture. It was all word of mouth. And for me... That's how this movie developed into the biggest movie of all time. You know, well, back in 1982. I mean, it's been passed, you know, since then. But so back then I was 12 years old and I was already like this massive movie fanatic. And every week what I used to do is I would go through the newspaper and I'd go right to the entertainment section because they always had these multiple pages of movie ads. Now, anybody out there that's old enough to remember the pages of the newspaper with the movie ads. Oh my God. Like, I got to tell you, like, that's where I, at least me, I, that's where I learned what the new movies were. You know, like what movies were playing in theaters, what movies were held over, you know, like what they were rated, you know, even what they were about. Um, the biggest movies always had the biggest ads in the newspaper. Yep. And back in June of 1982, the biggest movie, the one everyone was talking about, was a Steven Spielberg movie called Poltergeist. Now, Spielberg didn't direct that movie. It was directed by Toby Hooper. But Spielberg, uh, he he did write it, and he produced it too. But it, 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 everyone in Hollywood was t- just all talking about Poltergeist. 
I mean, it had the biggest ads in the newspaper. You know, it got all the buzz. And it was released on June the 4th of that summer. And at the same time, Spielberg was also working on this smaller, more personal film and about this like little lost alien that befriends a little boy. And nobody was talking about this movie. It was like a little side project that he had. And it was just, you know, it was just not thought of as really anything. You know, nobody really got behind it, which is kind of hard to believe when you think about it, because mm-hmm. this is the guy that directed Jaws. And, and Close and Encounters Monster. of the Third Kind. I know, Kai, I know, yeah, that's, like, that's the way it was. And E.T. was released on June 11th. And I would honestly say it was released to like no fanfare. And I remember those newspaper ads. It had this tiny little ad in the bottom corner of the page. And honestly, as a kid looking through, I didn't even realize that Spielberg had directed this movie when it first came out. And myself, like everybody else, I went to the movies to see Poltergeist. I remember I went to see it with my mom, Poltergeist, when, when that, that movie came out. She probably wanted to go just in case, you know, maybe it was too scary or something like that. You know, sure. I mean, it was directed by the guy who did Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right. So um, I, I like Poltergeist. I liked it then. I still like it. I think it was a pretty good movie. And there were some other good movies out at that time. There was Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan had come out on June 4th, same day as Poltergeist. And the thing is too, Derek, and, and you can shed some light on this, I think. This is, this is before, or this is at least when the idea was starting to evolve of the summer blockbuster. Because, I mean, it, you know, it, it, it's got to the point now where like all the, the biggest movies are, are released in the summer. Right. But that wasn't always the case. Right. I mean, I mean, there was Grease 2 and Annie and Firefox that all came out in 82 in the summer, but not exactly blockbusters. So, so Derek, I'd like to just touch base on that before we go into anything else. When for you, do you think Hollywood started sort of gunning for this big summer release? Because that's a real thing now, or at least it was for a while there before COVID and everything. Like it was like summer was like the season to release the big blockbusters, but it wasn't always that way. No. And I think you hit it on the head. I think once the revenue from these, you know, um, massive films that have stood the test of time because they are so great, uh, came out and did so well that the summer became the time to do it. And you, you look at things like, I know that star Wars typically had been released in late May, but that would then spill into June, July, August summers. Right. So, I mean, you can argue that star Wars was the first legit blockbuster lined up around the corner, but you had empire strikes back came out a couple of years before this. And then you had Jedi the following year, you had Rage lost Ark in 81. Like you've got one or two of these like absolute amazing movies and you got Ghostbusters a couple years later. So it's definitely around this time. I I mean, I, I was pretty young at the time, so I I can't specifically say, Oh, this was definitely the year it happened. But like so many decisions, it's dollars and cents. Once the money started rolling in, people realized, Hey, if we release a big summer blockbuster, kids are out of school. uh, They'll come and see it, especially if it's something that's not restricted to younger people, then yeah, for sure. Let's put it out in the summer and make a ton of cash off it. I think probably you could argue that Jaws was the first real blockbuster movie of all time. If you, if you don't count Gone with the Wind back in 39, basically the whole country went to see that movie when it came out. But I think Jaws was sort of the first true modern blockbuster. Cause, also because it, it took place in the summer, too. And, mm-hmm. and at, when it came out, it was the biggest movie of all time. But, you know, Star Wars, you mentioned, you're, that was originally supposed to come out in December of 76. But production issues 
push it off till May of 77, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, that, I think that might have been the one, Star Wars, probably that sort of set the stage for, you know, summer being the time to release big movies. Because that went right through the 80s. Like oh, Batman yeah, sure. in 89 was out in the summer. And I remember Jurassic Park when you got into like 93 and stuff and Independence Day. And so it was always like the summer thing. But uh, but anyway, so just going back to what I was saying about the those little movie ads about E.T. I remember week after week, these ads just stuck around. And the thing was, you know, we mentioned this before. Back then, a movie would come out in the theaters. It would play for a couple weeks and then it was gone. You didn't see it anymore. But this E.T. movie... It just kept staying and staying. And these, these these little movie ads got bigger and bigger and bigger. And word of mouth was spreading. It was just about how good this movie was. And I went to the movies to see it, and I loved it. Like, I remember I saw it three times. Like I said, I took my sister to go see it. Now, she would have been six years old at the time, I guess. And I always remember, because I remember turning to look at her in the scene when near the end when E.T. had to leave. And, and mm-hmm. leave Elliot, and there's my sister just tears streaming down her face, and I was like, "Kids love this movie." I mean, so did adults, but I mean, God, this movie was—it was impactful. You know what I mean? It was so, it was so good, so good. Um, I remember when I uh, when I first saw this in the theater. I don't remember exactly when I first saw it there, but when it came out, when I saw it in the theater, I would have been about you know seven or eight years old, and it was every bit as influential on me and and I enjoyed it every bit as much as I had, you know, Empire Strikes Back a couple of years earlier. And E.T., just like Star Wars, was marketed like crazy. There were toys. There was all sorts of stuff. I can remember I had an E.T. wallet. I had E.T. posters. There was E.T. There was like action figures. There was plushy toys. There was like anything and everything that could be E.T. that could have a logo on it or a picture of the alien or, or something. Like there was just so much merchandising around this. And as a young kid, I wanted to have all of it. You want to have E.T. everything. And I remember we had E.T. bed sheets and we had e- like everything that had an E.T., uh, you know, some sort of uh, toy connection. We had it between my brother and I. It was like, you know, it was crazy. And unlike Star Wars, where you would recreate the movies and stuff, it, you know, it was just it, it was an interesting looking back. It's like you don't really play E.T. like with the E.T. figure like you would with the Star Wars figures, but it was still something that we wanted. And uh, I can just remember it being, um, <clears throat> excuse me, so overwhelming. And when I was watching the movie this week, I started to remember all of these like different ETs I had. I, I can remember having like an actual like six inch action figure and it had like a, a, a neck thing that you could like a, a lever in the back of him where his neck would get bigger. And then I can remember having like a, a plushy toy that had like leather, like faux leather skin, like you'd have on a couch. And then I can, and it was like, maybe 12 inches tall. And then I can remember we had like a ET throw pillow and we had, uh, I can remember the posters, the movie posters. I remember I had this yellow ET wallet that had ET's picture on it, like just so much stuff and hadn't thought about any of that stuff in years. And then when I'm watching the movie, just all the memories flooded back. So like I mentioned, it was nominated for nine Academy Awards. Uh, it was nominated for Best Cinematography, Best Director, Best Picture, didn't win those ones. But it won for Best Sound, Best Visual Effects, and and Best Score. Yep. I want to talk about the score for a second. Because John Williams, I mean, he obviously made a name for himself when he did, with that minimalist Jaws score, right? And then when he did Star Wars, like, you just had to think, okay, this guy's peaked. You know what I mean? Like, even Spielberg, who hired him to do Close Encounters, I think Spielberg at one point said to Lucas, like, man, man, oh, man, this, like, Williams did his best work for you. 
You know, there's no way I'm going to get anything out of him. And then the guy goes on to do Superman, Raiders, E.T., Jurassic Park. And all of them are just, they're just so, like, historic. So iconic. Oh, man, if you were, like, uh, if you were a conductor and you did one of those things, you'd be, like, just, you know, you'd be a god. You know, like, the fact that he did these things. The score in this movie is so good. And, and I think if you you combine it with that scene when the, the kids' bikes are flying through the air, they go past the moon. Yeah. That's what Hollywood legends are made out of. Like, well, and, and like so that, that icon is is now so like it's an iconic icon. It's the Amblin Entertainment Spielberg's production company has that logo. But you can you see that picture of the bicycle over the full moon and like immediately, you know, that's from E.T. Like it's just. It's so recognizable. You can't even see the actual ET character, but just the image of the boy on the bicycle with the basket over the full moon. It's just, it's so memorable. It's so perfect. And the music, of course, helps embed that image in your mind. Like when I see the logo in the back of my mind, I can hear the the score going. Now, one of the things I did read, because I, I read up on a whole bunch of the trivia for this movie, because it's been so long since I really dug into that. And they were saying that normally... And again, this is sort of half-ass internet research, so it may or may not be true, but I got to believe that it probably is. Um, normally, uh, when a movie's done, then they hand it over to the music department and they they score the movie, and that's mm-hmm. it. And the the music is added over top of the movie that's already done. In this case, John Williams was having trouble syncing everything up in a way that he felt was good, and Spielberg was, uh, and when he brought it to Spielberg and said this, Spielberg's like, "Well, let's try it this way. You do the turn the screen off." Just do the music like you think it should be done. And when Spielberg heard it, he's like, that music's perfect. He actually re-edited parts of the movie so that it would fit to the score. So he did the, basically did the music and then made the movie fit instead of the other way where they usually do the movie and make the music fit, which is apparently not something that happens very often. But obviously, John Williams felt strongly about how it should be done. And like you said, he won an Oscar for his work. So he clearly had the right idea. And that's not the only thing that's unique about the score. That is very unique because usually, like you say, they usually put it up on the screen uh, and the conductor will conduct along with the, the scenes to try and get the the orchestra to play along to it. You're right. So that's, that's very different, but it's not the only thing that's unique because the score is also polytonal, like where you use two different keys playing mm-hmm. at the same time. Very rare, but just used a great effect here. The score in this movie is so good. Um, one thing I want to talk about was the adults in this movie, because the movie yeah, is obviously about, I, I definitely want to talk about this. Yeah. yeah it's about ET's relationship with Elliot. Right. But the whole movie is shown from a child's perspective. And a lot of times, other than D. Wallace, most adults, you only see them from like the waist down. Like it's always kind of like, it's like the camera's, camera's position low. You know, it's like from a child's view. And it's also like the kids are like in the know. You know, like even the mom, she's not aware of what's going on, right? And to me, one of the funniest moments in the movie is when the mom goes into the kid's closet and sees all the stuffed animals. Yeah. And E.T.'s there and you, she just thinks it's a stuffed animal, right? And um, and even Peter Coyote, he's like one of the lead actors in the movie. You don't ever really see his face till almost the end. Even then, when you see him, he's like inside a hazmat suit. Like, so I mean, adults are like played down. They're almost like the in Charlie Brown. They're almost like the the trumpet sound. You know, like the wah, 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 wah. they're just not really involved. It's all about the kids. 
Yeah, and that was something that I didn't pick up on or wasn't conscious of until this viewing that uh, number one, you don't see the uh, faces of any of the adults except the mom. Uh, it was, I believe, 80 minutes into the movie because when we first, it was basically when all the government agents show up in the hazmat suits and they've got like E.T., and Elliot are both hooked up to the machines and you can start to see the doctors in their face. Right. Like that was the first time that you could actually see another adult's face. So I paused it really quickly and it said it was at the 80 minute mark in the movie. So the vast majority of this movie, the first two thirds, any adults are either uh, shot for like sort of that middle waist, like even the teacher as he's walking around the class, you get the shot sort of waist height you get to see you know just the, the back of them you don't see their face or their head except for the mom obviously um so i thought that was interesting and then like to your point when i was reading up about it they said yeah this was a deliberate choice by spielberg to give you a sense of it's from the child's point of view and to make et seem less scary um by having the cameras sort of positioned so low so i thought that was interesting and then the other thing was um the main male uh, adult who who they, they refer to as keys because he's got the jingling keys. Yeah, Peter Coyote. Yeah. I never really, I never really noticed that in all the times before this viewing, the keys I was completely oblivious to them. The oh, I remember right from the opening scene. I remember even as a kid, because when when they're chasing ET through the forest, it's the keys. The keys mm -hmm. you can see the keys jingling on his belt. Yeah, I never, I never got yeah. that. And then my wife had mentioned it to me. We were talking about this movie, you know, between the last show and this show. And I said, oh, I'm going to watch it, blah, blah, blah. And she mentioned something about keys. I'm like, keys, what are you talking about? And she goes, the guy, the main guy with the keys. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So sure enough, when I start watching it and they, you know, he comes out. And again, it's because you're getting those shots of the waist. You know, you don't get to see a face. It's like, well, how do you make all these guys, how do you make one guy stand out from the group? And it's like, oh, he's got this keychain with these jangling keys on his belt. So you know, everyone's wearing the same kind of pants, the same kind of shirt, the same kind of belt, but this guy has the keys. I'm like, oh, that makes perfect sense. I'm like, what a creative way to do it without bonking you over the head with it. But obviously some people picked up on it well before I was today years old when I realized this. Oh, cool. yeah. uh, another uh, theme in the movie I think is important is, is the idea of aliens. So mm -hmm. up until when this movie came out, movies about aliens pretty much always depicted the aliens as bad guys. You know, yep. they, they came to Earth to kill people in like War of the Worlds and stuff like that. Or, or they wanted to take over control of the world like in day, the day the Earth stood still and stuff like that. And it wasn't really until Spielberg came along in 77 with Close Encounters. And he yep. basically asked this interesting question. Like, what if aliens came to Earth and they were friendly? Like, well, nobody's ever thought of that before. Like, that's kind of interesting. And then E.T. takes things a step further. And it was like, well, what if aliens were the good guys and humans were the bad guys. Yeah. You know, and that's what's going on here with Peter Coyote and the scientists and the adults and stuff. And it's kind of true. Like if, if E.T. were real and really came to Earth, they'd want to trap him, you know, and, and do tests on him and stuff like that. So I thought it was an interesting theme to explore in this movie. Yeah. And again, it was it was uh, something that had come up in the in the trivia when I was reading through it. And I never really thought about it in that context before. But yeah, it seems it seems to make perfect sense. Like you up until this point, aliens were bad. They all, and, and I mean, the whole thing with science fiction is that it's usually a metaphor for something else. Right. Like you have vision of the body snatchers. It's like, well, it's really a, a metaphor for McCarthyism. Right. Like it, it's usually about something other than what you what you see at its face. So, of course, 
most of sci-fi before this was all like, oh, you know, the alien is bad. Well, the alien stands for racism or the alien stands for government corruption or the alien stands for whatever. So it was interesting to to finally have this kind of a movie where you have this alien that, you know, is is um, is the good guy. And so I was making an interesting comparison in my head as I was watching this. Mm-hmm. So I'm, d- I'm just going to sort of broad strokes dis- if I had to describe this movie to somebody in a really sort of off center way that's still somewhat accurate. Sure. So. A group of scientists take a spaceship to an alien planet and they have to leave unexpectedly in a hurry and one of them gets left behind and it turns out he's the botanist so he knows about plants and stuff and he's able to survive by himself for a long time until the until the rest of the uh, the aliens come back and get him am I talking about E.T. or am I talking about the Martian with Matt Damon, Matt Damon. That's right. I was just thinking that so, when you were saying that. I was, yeah, I was thinking yeah. that. I'm like, I know it's kind of a stretch. No. But is it really? It's true. Because yeah. E.T. isn't like a military guy. Like, they came to collect plant samples. They show the yeah. thing on the ship where they have all the He's plants. He's a botanist, yeah. And, and that's it. He's, he although they don't really get into it specifically because it's obviously a kid's movie, they... Like he's on a scientific mission. He's not there to to take over the world. He's there to learn about the plants and take take samples and and all that stuff. So I just I sort of chuckled to myself when I made that connection in my brain. Um, but and the other thing that uh, one of the others I know we're not going to talk about every, like all the specific breakdowns, but I really forgot about the scene where ET drinks the beers and then he gets drunk and then Elliot gets drunk. I totally forgot about that. And I'm watching this movie and I was laughing so much. And can I think we, that's, can we stick a pin in that and come back? Sure. To that? Okay. Cause there's, there's, there's something about that I want to address, but I think it's best sure. if we kind of maybe just leave it for now. Um, sure thing. can we talk about the cast a little bit? So Henry Thomas did this amazing screen test for this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, where he basically improvised crying about his dog and got the, got the role. But he didn't do much else. Like he was in Cloak and Dagger with Dabney Coleman. I remember that, but other than yep. that, I don't remember him in much else. But Dee Wallace, I mentioned her briefly. I always liked her. I thought she was a really underrated actress, and she has worked consistently, you know, over the years. She's always been a working actress. But I think she gets kind of pigeonholed in as someone that's in like horror movies, you know, like Cujo and The Howling and stuff like that. But Drew Barrymore is one I want to mention because she's like Hollywood royalty. You know, John and Ethel Barrymore were her grandparents and and her great uncle was Lionel Barrymore, who was, of course, Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life. Now, she originally auditioned for Spielberg's other movie, Poltergeist, just like every other child actor in Hollywood probably did back in 82. I mean, that was the movie, right? But... Spielberg liked her audition, but he was like, you're just not right for, for Carol Ann. So he's like, you know what? I'm also working on this other movie. You might be pretty good for it. So he ended up taking her over and, and putting her on E.T. Mm. And let's just say that worked out pretty well. <laughs> yeah. No you know, I mean, she stole every scene she was in. Uh, pretty amazing to do for a six-year-old kid. And then she did Firestarter and then pretty much went into a downward spiral of drug abuse. Right for a long time, I and mean, she was 
quite the wild child. But then she cleaned up her act, and then she made this huge comeback in Hollywood mm-hmm. as an adult, and that is pretty rare to do. Like, I mean, she, yeah, she did a lot of uh, romantic comedies in the '90s when yeah, she was starting she to like did. get her act together, and like some of them were better than others. But she was in some really great movies. Like, she did um, the Wedding Singer with Adam Sandler, which was really good. It's been on TV a lot in the last couple of weeks, and I've probably seen that movie over a dozen times. She was also in um, a movie called Ever After, which was like uh, sort of a reimagining of the Cinderella story, which was pretty decent as well. Again, had a big cast. Angela Houston, Angelica Houston was in it. Um, and she was really good in that. And and again, like she's she's got a, a number of very memorable roles, uh, a, most of them being like those sort of romantic comedy, lighthearted uh, movies in, in through the late 90s and early 2000s. And uh, yeah, and then it just seems to be like onward and upward after that. One of the lines in the movie that always it, I chuckled when I was a kid was when he calls him penis breath. Yeah. And I wonder watching it again. Well, that now, was Elliot calling the brother. That, his that brother. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if that line was like held out of the script and only Henry Thomas was told about it. And the reason I, I wonder is because it was it was I read that. that oh, was that, it? Because yeah, Dee Wallace's had, reaction yeah. is just is it legit. almost feels improvisational the way yes. she reacts to it, you know? Yeah. I remember um, SNL. I, I have, I tell you, I, I remember so many crazy things. I remember Saturday Night Live spoofing ET back in like '82, and Tim Kazarinsky had a line where he called his brother "pianist breath," you know, to, to spoof this. And I don't, I don't know why I remember that. I always remember these crazy things. The but, only, the only Saturday Night Live spoof I remember about uh, ET was it was actually when Sigour- I think it was Sigourney Weaver was hosting and they were doing a spoof on Alien, the Alien movies, where they're all they're all in the bunker and they've got that little thing out and they're like, it's going beep, 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 beep. And they're like, the aliens are 10 meters away. The aliens are five meters away there. And they're like, they're on the other side of this door. Get ready. Then the doors open up and everyone starts shooting. And then ET just falls over and they're like, oh, my God, you killed ET. And they realized they were on the wrong planet. And that was the joke. Oh, got it. Um, the scene when, when he does that line, too. The, the older kids, they were playing Dungeons and Dragons. At the beginning, they were, yeah. yes. And, and the thing was, at the time that movie came out, not a lot of people knew, you know, what that was. You know, it was still pretty new. I guess a well, lot of people it, still It was knew. 10 years old. It just wasn't yeah. very popular. Yeah, it wasn't really popular. Like not, a lot, not a lot of mainstream uh, um, success at that point. Yeah, not like you. You're the, uh, you know, D&D professional, you know. Um, you mentioned earlier about the, the, the CGI. And that, I think that's important because... Like you mentioned, for a while there, Lucas got on that kick where he went back and did those special editions, and you know he put all that stupid new stuff into the original trilogy. Like that, the, there was the, the Jawa swinging from the big creature and Han Solo's like scene with Jabba that was cut out and all that other junk. And really, for me, it was an omen of what we were to you know to be subjected to with this, the the prequels. But you're right, Spielberg got on board too, and, and like he went back and he put a bunch of things in this, so. For me, one of the most enduring things about this movie and watch it now is the practical special effects in it. Yeah. It makes everything just feel real, you know? I think the story works better because, uh, in, in my humble opinion anyway, the the these effects are just better. I mean, you're the champion of everything new, Derek. But I mean, what's your take going back and watching like these sort of practical special effects in E.T. versus all the CGI that we see nowadays? Well, I think it's it's you you gain your preference based on your your own personal experience. So you and I grew up with with practical effects, and when they were when they were bad, they were really bad. But when they were good, like in Star Wars or ET or some of these other movies, like you could really appreciate 
and you really gave you this sense of of realism uh, that helped helped immerse you in that story or in the case of a really out there sci-fi immerse you in this world of fantasy or science fiction whereas i think today um you know if if you if all you've ever known are digital special effects and you've continued to see them improve over the last decade then that's probably going to be your preference because you know you're 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 in a world of video games and things of that nature so you're used to seeing that so i think though like you and I, we we lived a long time growing up with practical effects, and then we've seen practical become digital. So we're a little more keen to the differences. So like I think people like you and I in our demographic, we're gonna watch something and can probably very quickly and easily go, well, that's probably practical effects and that's probably a digital effects, where I would think someone who's a little younger who never really watched a lot of practical effects just is gonna assume everything is digital at this point and really doesn't care if it is or it isn't. You know, you, when you were talking about the adults, you know, it got me thinking, too. There was a scene that they cut out of the movie where they actually were. Um, Elliot got called into the principal's office mm-hmm. and you don't really see the principal all that much. But then in one camera shot, you get a, a view of the principal and it's Harrison Ford played that role. And they cut it out because, I mean, Spielberg was like, we can't put Harrison Ford at this. <laughs> like, you know, he was yeah. Han Solo and Indiana Jones and stuff. I'm, I'm glad they cut it out. That would have been distracting. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, the candy in this movie because I again I'm going back to 1982. I, one thing I remember about this movie was Reese's Pieces. So yeah. the the script called for, and by the way, the script that Melissa Marshall wrote very. You talked about things that are rare with this movie. Very rarely is any movie ever made on the first draft of a script. You get a yeah. script, you rewrite it, they rewrite it. Even Jaws was rewritten and rewritten and rewritten by, you know, multiple things. This is basically the first draft of the script. Spielberg took it, shot the movie. I'm like, that's pretty yeah. rare. But the, the script called for M&Ms that, you know, Elliot would put out these little trail of M&Ms and E.T. would do it. And the company that uh, that has M&Ms like, we're not doing this. No, we're not going to give you the rights to it. So you got Reese's. Well, I, I read that part of the reason they said no was they were worried that the alien would be scary to children, and they were worried that children would assume this scary alien likes these candies, so they wouldn't buy the candy. So right. that was why they'd. That was part of the reason they said no. And up until then, Reese's was only known for like peanut butter cups. I remember there was ads back in the seventies. I remember watching them on Saturday morning cartoons, and it was like, you know, a guy was walking down the street eating peanut butter. And there's another guy walking down the street oh, yeah. eating chocolate. They're like, hey, and they bump into each other. Hey, you got your chocolate, my peanut butter. You got your peanut butter, my chocolate. And they eat it like, hey, this is really good. But that's all Reese's did. And then Reese's came out with these little Reese's pieces. They decided whatever in like 1981, 1982 to expand their, their product line. And they're going to come out with these little Reese's pieces. And so they were like, hey, you can put our product in there. And let me tell you, it put them on the map. I remember like it was like you couldn't like you couldn't get enough of these things. Like it was like I went I went to the store and bought Reese's pieces as a kid because of this movie and I loved them. I still love mm-hmm. them to this point today. Um my my dad bod actually is testimony to that, I will say. I, I wasn't going to say anything but you know. <laughs> but, but I mean like they this just appearing in this film shot them into the stratosphere in terms of like their appeal as a candy. Like it's just amazing how much influence that, you know, this things can have when, yep. you know, when what one thing, um, I want to talk a little bit about a sequel. Uh, they, they had talked actually at one point about having a sequel to this movie. 
Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, that, a movie yeah. comes out like this. It's like the number one film of the year. It's like the highest grossing film of all time. It, it knocked out Star Wars for crying out loud. How the hell does that happen? It did. And so, of course, they got to talk about a sequel. And Melissa Matheson actually wrote a treatment called ET2 Nocturnal Fears. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I was reading about that, yeah. And, and, and I guess the script had Elliot uh, getting kidnapped by evil aliens, and then E.T. is going to save them. And one of the, the, the big things in the movie was you, you learn what E.T.'s real name was, and it was Zarek, apparently, sure. in the sequel. But they never got made. Thank God. Why would they now, do that? Why? So this movie is perfect from beginning to end. It tells a story. It tells a great story, and it wraps up. And it lets you know that sometimes, you know, in this world, you make a friend and sometimes you lose a friend and that's the way it goes. And you got to deal with that. Why would just let it go? I'm so glad they let it go. Sequel to E.T. would have been so stupid. So speaking of unshot uh, ideas is I was reading and this is something I read for the very first time this week was that the movie was again true or not the movie was not supposed to end the way it originally ended there was supposed to be one more scene where a little bit of time has passed and it was back to the family kitchen where the boys were once again playing Dungeons and Dragons but this time Elliot was involved to sort of let the audience know that they've all now the you know the older boys have accepted Elliot as one of their friends now because they had this little adventure together with ET and then it would slowly pan out of the house and then back and you would see like it would pan up to the roof and then on the roof you would see the the radio that ET made with the speak and spell and the umbrella and it would still be turning to indicate that Elliot is still in communication with ET or still trying to reach out to him and they had every intention of doing that but then after they shot the final scene that we see in the movie with all the emotion and everything else Spielberg's like that's no. perfect ending we, yeah, we don't you know there. anything after this is going to hurt it and one of the things that I had read previously but totally forgot was because the movie is so much uh, has so much to do with these young actors and is about children, Spielberg opted to shoot it in order, which is not typical. Um, but for the young kids to help them get into it and help to have them have that emotional journey of getting to know E.T., that the end of the movie, the last scenes they shot um, were the last scenes of the movie. So when they had to say goodbye, it wasn't just you're acting like you're saying goodbye. It's like we're done after yeah. this. Go home yeah. like the whole movie is done. So the emotions that are on on display there are very much real, you know, not just because these kids are, are good performers and, and good actors, but because they genuinely were going to miss the experiences they were having on the movie, as well as missing the character of E.T. in the movie. So I, I thought that was, again, it was interesting. So I'm glad that they didn't do that extra little scene. No. Uh, and, and that's a good choice, I think, by Spielberg to do that. When you're working with the kids, you know, you got to play it up, you know, and, and, and play to them. And you're right, most, most movies are not shot, you know, in, in chronological order, that's for sure. No. But it definitely worked out here. So that being said, before we wrap up, you know, we, we both agree this movie's fantastic, obviously. Oh, so good. I forgot how made. good it was. Oh, yeah. So good. Any criticisms of the film? Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, well, so I have a question for you. Normally, it's you with the questions for me. This is the one, my one thing that I disliked about the movie or that I, the one question that it still stands unanswered to me, even that during this viewing is okay. when... Um, when the government people show up and they have E.T. and Elliot in the makeshift hospital there and they're they're um, 
trying to figure out what's going on. And Elliot keeps saying like, you're killing him, leave him alone, leave him mm -hmm. alone. And the, the male performer keys comes up and he's talking to Elliot for the first time. And they're like, you can't talk to him. And he's like, no, this is the only time I can talk to him. And, uh, and Elliot's like, no, no, you can't do this. You can't. He came for me. And then the adult says, he came for me too. And I never understood that. Yeah, that kind like, of stands out. Is this to out. imply that E.T. has, or, or an alien, had come previously and we're supposed to now go, oh, well, is E.T. now coming back? Because one of the things I read was when the guy first comes face to face with the E.T. alien, there's a look and it's like, well, is this supposed to be a look of recognition? And I'm like, I never once got that. And I always thought that line just seemed a little bit odd where he's like, he came for me, too. Since I've been a 10 year old boy, I've been wishing for this. It's like, well, are you maybe because he's a, he maybe because he's you're... a scientist, though, you know, because if yeah. you're a scientist and all of a sudden, you know, maybe, you know, he I'm assuming he's not just any scientist. He's not just some guy working in a lab. Sure. He is maybe involved in looking for extraterrestrials or thinking that ufos exist or something like that and then suddenly there's proof that there is one and he's like my, my whole life i've been studying this maybe this alien in his mind came for him too to validate you know his lifelong yeah i thing. just think it was an know. odd yeah an odd choice of dialogue and even as a little kid i picked up on that and was confused by it and every time since mm -hmm. then that i've rewatched it that line has always bothered me because i didn't understand it and even today or this week rather when i was watching this the line jumped out at me yet again and i just thought i don't get it i think i i, I don't understand what they were trying to get at and i think that you know in an otherwise next to perfect movie that is my only one little detail that i felt didn't quite work for me so, um, so my criticism, and I asked you earlier, to, I want to stick a pin in this and come back to it. Mm -hmm. When you talked about when uh, E.T. drinks the beer. Oh, yeah. And then Elliot gets drunk. That's the one thing I didn't really like about the movie. Because that whole Elliot and E.T. sharing emotions thing. Like, like, like when, when that scene when he's at school and then, and then he gets drunk. Like, I know what they were going for. But for me, it just seems hokey and it just misses the mark. Like, I know they, they can be kindred spirits, mm -hmm. but they never really explain why that whole thing kind of happens. Why, you know, like it's one thing, you know, if, if someone feels something and someone, you know, um, you know, I remember there used to be these things back in the 80s that were like, you know, like these paranormal things like someone feels something, you know, 8,000 miles away. And, you know, you, you kind of that's fine. But. To drink alcohol when someone else gets drunk, like to me, it just it, that just seemed hokey to me. I just I didn't like that. So see, and I as a young kid, I guess I didn't uh, like my my parents don't drink alcohol. So growing up, I didn't have anyone in my household that drank beer. I mean, I was aware of what beer was, but I I didn't really have any firsthand experience of seeing drunk people. So when I was watching the movie as a young kid, I didn't really understand that Elliot was was like drunk I like you know what I mean it's I think it was just a lack of context being a young mm -hmm. kid um and so over the years obviously I, I understood it a little bit better but when I watched it this week I, again having not seen the movie for so long I really laughed a lot at that sequence and just when E.T. was drunk and he was falling all over and he walked head first into the countertop oh I was just that laughing. was fine that one but it was the connection it. with then, Elliot that, that that did it for me no, and I was fine with that. And again, the brother even mentions where they're like, oh, you mean like he talks to him and he's like, well, no, he feels what he feels. And I, I think that just helped sell just how connected they really were, just like how quickly they became that connected. Um, one other thing that I wanted to just touch on 
that again, that I picked up on this viewing that I had not picked up previously, again, partly because I watch movies with a more acute eye these days, is um, the two things that E.T. says at the end when he leaves, when he's talking to Gertie, he says, be good. And it occurred to me that those are the first words he spoke to her as well when she was watching the Sesame Street. And at the time, he was repeating B, the letter B, mm-hmm. and she just says good, like acknowledgement, right. like, yes, you're learning. Whereas the, you know, it sort of has that double meaning at the end yes. of, of, you know, you should behave, be good. Right. And I was like, oh, I was like, that's clever that it's sort of the first and last thing he mm-hmm. says to her is the same, the same words, but he's, he's using it in a different way to really indicate like that he is learning and he understands. And I thought that was clever. And then the other thing was with uh, Elliot at the beginning when he sort of brings E.T. in the house and he's going to get him some food and 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 E.T. thinks he's being abandoned by Elliot and Elliot says, I'll be right here. And he's touching his chest. But he literally means at that time, like, don't worry, I'm not going, I'm not leaving the house. I'm going to mm-hmm. be right back. And again, those are the, that's what he says at the end to Elliot is I'll be right here. But again, he's touching his heart, meaning like, I'm never going to forget you. Right. you had an I'll be in your heart. Yeah. I'll be in your heart. But at the yet. same time, it's that repetition of I'll be right here. Like repeating, this is one of the very first things you ever said to me. I'm repeating it back to you. And it's just. And so maybe that's all that he means. Yeah. But so it's like, again, Elliot, it was, you know, interprets it differently. Right. Or it was intended to be interpreted differently. Mm -hmm. Again, I think it works both ways, but it's one of those little details where when you really watch these movies with a critical eye, you can pick up on these details that are, I'm absolutely sure, intentionally in there by the writer. But as an eight-year-old kid, you don't pick up on that. Hell, even as a 28-year-old guy, I didn't pick up on it. It wasn't until this week that I picked up on that. So it was, again, the movie is so good on so many levels. And I love when I can watch a great movie, or in this case, a great film even, and get something new out of it that I didn't get out of it the last time. And saying that I've seen this movie 20 times and getting something new out of it, getting a lot of new stuff out of it this time, really just emphasized to me how fantastic this movie really is. So what what does it rate out of 10 for you? Oh, it's 10 out of 10. No question. Me too. Yeah, 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10. This movie is fantastic. All right. Yep. Let's have some fun with Caveman. <laughs> So, Derek, one of the most popular games that we like to play in this uh, Fun with Caveman segment is, is where we give the year and the synopsis and the other person oh, yes. has to guess the movie title, right? Sure. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. since we play this game so much around here, I thought it was only appropriate that I write an intro song for it. Nice. So, so are you ready? Here, here, Let's here. hear it. Yeah. Right, here it goes. Pick the flick. synopsis then pick the flick you get the year pick the flick nice i like it it's very upbeat and oh, like not it. reggae so i'm like the worst singer of all time though like the worst yeah. um okay so <laughs> i'm gonna you I'm know gonna what that get... intro needed chris what more more drums oh i think it needed more cowbell but well maybe, you maybe know both. you can never have too much cowbell but Anyway, right. sorry, go on. Yes. So I'm going to give you the year and the synopsis, and you get to pick the flick. Okay. Just like is there the a common says. theme running through these? There is a common thread here. Just like E.T., all yeah. these movies have an acronym in the title. Oh, all so right. You get a, and I'm going to give you bonus points if you can name what the acronym stands for. Okay, nice. So, I like so I'm it. Gonna, I like I'm going to give you the year and the synopsis, and you pick the flick. Should I replay the song? 
No, I, guess not. I think it's good. No. You don't want to. You don't want to get people yeah. uh, bored okay. of it on the first night. All right. So here goes. 1970, the staff of a Korean War field hospital use humor and hijinks to keep their sanity in the face of the horror of war. Uh, was that Mash? Sure was. Now, for bonus points, can you name oh. what does Bash stand for? Um, I, I, I like I, I never watched the TV show, but I did see the movie a couple of times. I think it's Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. Sure is. Congratulations. Nice. All right. Nice. All right. 2017. Right in your wheelhouse. Nice. A rookie officer is teamed with a hardened pro at the California Highway Patrol. Though the newbie soon learns his partner is really an undercover fed investigating a heist that may involve some crooked cops. Yeah, based on the TV show of the same name, Chips. And can you tell me what does Chips uh, stand for? Yeah, it's uh, California Highway Patrol. Yeah, there's no I. There's no I. If you remember, it's the high was the H I from Highway. Yeah, I remember that from yeah. the old begin. And I love the theme song. Oh yeah, the old TV show had the had the small little letter, like I, like the little yeah. like lowercase, right? Okay. Yeah. 1985, a seemingly normal boy is discovered abandoned on a mountain road and adopted by a family who are increasingly amazed by his abilities before discovering the secret behind his real identity. Yeah, it's called the movie's called Daryl. Michael McKeon and the girl from Garp, if I remember correctly. Uh, what does Daryl stand for? No, I, I've never seen it, and I have no idea. And it's funny you bring this up. This came up in one of my nerd nights a few weeks ago. Somebody, I can't, I don't know what the context was, but this is now the second time in under a month that somebody has referenced this bad movie, and I have no idea what. It's Data analyzing robot youth life form. Sure. Yeah. I remember watching that movie actually once on the movie network when, you know, when it came out and like back in like 85, 86, it was actually pretty good. I remember I thought it okay. was, wasn't bad. Okay. 1988, an alien trying to escape from NASA is befriended by a wheelchair bound boy. Wow. Uh, that doesn't even sound familiar. Jeez. I have no idea. Mac and me is probably one of the worst movies ever made in the history of Hollywood. It was a sure. ripoff of E.T. It was just terrible. Really? Wow. What, like, what, what did oh. the Mac stand for? <laughs> Mysterious alien creature. Jeez. <laughs> it was like, it had these like big puffy cheeks and these like big eyes. Oh, it was just, just a terrible. terrible okay. I, I don't, ripoff. I don't have any problem missing that question. No, then. You miss nothing by missing that movie, but man, it was like one of the worst movies ever made. Okay. 2010. Again, a little newer. That's in your wheelhouse. Yeah, okay. When his peaceful life is threatened by a high-tech assassin, former black ops agent Frank Moses reassembles his old team in a last-ditch effort to survive and uncover his assailants. Yes. This movie was actually really good, and it was called Red. And what does Red stand for? Retired, extremely dangerous. Sure does. Okay. In 2000, the movie, when Jack, a sign language speaking chimp, makes a break for freedom, his talent for ice skating 
soon turns him into a local <laughs> hockey team's secret weapon. But the lab officials are closing in. What's the name of the movie? Oh, yeah, it was like something MVP. It was like, uh, yeah, it was MVP, Most Valuable Primate. Yes, it was MVP, and MVP stands for Most Valuable Primate. Yeah, I remember that from my blockbuster days. Very well done. Okay, 2003, an imprisoned drug kingpin offers a huge cash reward to anyone that can break him out of police custody, and only the LAPD's special weapons and tactics team can prevent it. Yeah. Well, you just gave me the answer there. The movie is, again, based on the old TV show SWAT. And, of course, SWAT stands for? Yeah, special weapons and tactics. Very well done. Very well. Yeah. It was good. All right, 2015. Again, right in your wheelhouse. Here we go. we got a couple right in your wheelhouse right here. In the early 1960s, CIA agent Napoleon Solo and KGB operative Ilya Kuryagin participate in a joint mission against a curious criminal, or sorry, a mysterious criminal organization which is working to proliferate nuclear weapons. Oh, uh, is this the new Bond one? It was a Spectre? I'm sorry, it was the man from Uncle. Oh. Man from, I guess you have no idea what Uncle stands for. No, I started watching that movie. I got a halfway, like half an hour into it, and it was terrible. Believe me, it had uh, it has the guy, uh, what's his name, Henry Cavill, who is super easy on the eyes. But man, oh man, I could not get into that movie at all. No, what was Uncle stand for? It was based on on the old old sixty TV show. Yeah, yeah. It was United Network Command for Law and Enforcement. Go figure. Okay, two thousand and eight. In the distant future, a small waste collecting robot. Mm-hmm. inadvertently embarks on a space journey that will ultimately decide the fate of mankind. Uh, so the movie is the Disney Pixar WALL-E. And can you tell me what WALL-E stands for? Uh, well, see, this is funny you ask because one of the greatest hits Pop Goes Your World episodes that dropped like while we were on vacation in March mm-hmm. it was you and Yancey reviewing this movie. And this was one of the questions you gave Yancey is what does WALL-E stand for? And he couldn't get it either. And I don't remember. So. <laughs> Waste Allocation Load Lifter Earth Class. Yeah. No, and then no. you asked him, what does Eve stand for? And again, he couldn't know. He didn't yeah, know it either. Know. And I don't know it either. And he, and he claimed to love like it was like his favorite movie. OK, 2016, an orphan little girl befriends a benevolent giant who takes her to giant country where they attempt to stop the man eating giants that are invading the human world. Is this directed by Steven Spielberg? Possibly. Uh, it possibly was. Uh, yeah, I believe it was the BFG. Yes, that's it. And it was directed by Spielberg. Yeah. What does no, BFG stand for? BFG. Um, well, I know what I always say the F stands for, but I know that's not right. So it's, I believe, the big friendly giant. What do you say that the, the BFG stands for? Nothing I feel comfortable saying on this podcast. Okay. 1981. Oh, this is in my wheelhouse now. A movie producer who made a huge flop, tries to salvage his career by revamping his film as an erotic production where its family-friendly star takes her top off. Jeez, I have no idea. That doesn't sound familiar at all. It's S-O-B. S-O-B. I liked this movie. I thought it was pretty good. And what does the S-O-B stand for? Standard Operational Bullshit. Wow. Okay. 
Yeah. I like that movie. It was, it was Blake Edwards and, and it was Julie Andrews shedding her image. She actually did a topless scene in the movie. Wow. Yeah. Good for her. Yep. Yeah. Okay. 1984. A, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just laughing because I'm looking ahead and seeing my last one. I can't wait. I can't wait to wait. I just want to pass all these ones and get to the last one. I can't wait. It's so funny. Okay. Sorry. 1984. A bizarre series of sudden disappearances on the streets of New York City seems to point towards something unsavory living in the sewers. Yeah, it was Chud. What does Chud stand for? I believe it's cannibalistic human underground dwellers. I'll give it to you. It's cannibalistic humanoid underground dweller. Very close. John Hurd was in that one. I think Daniel Stern Not, not to be confused with the internet movie site that may or may not still be around that was called Chud that was Cinematic Happenings Under Development. Ah, there you go. Okay, 1978. A rebellious Cleveland warehouse worker rises through the ranks of a trucking industry union to become the first union president, but his organized crime links cause his eventual downfall. I have no idea. It doesn't sound familiar at all. Fist with Sylvester okay. Stallone, Peter Boyle, and Melinda Dillon. Don't remember that one? Fist stands yeah, never for... heard of it. What does Fist stand for? Federated Interstate Truckers. Okay. <laughs> Sylvester Stallone. Okay. After Rocky. All right. 1979. College exploitation film. Oh, this ought to be good. College exploitation film focusing on the wild escapades of the women of a sorority. The antics include, but are not limited to, a wet t-shirt contest, a skydiving episode, plenty of fraternity boys, and even a housekeeping robot. So I think I know this because I think this is one of the movies I've told you before. Um, when I was younger, my cousins and I would, oh, would yeah. rent movies from the yep. local video shop and there was only like about 30 to choose from. And this was one of them. And was it called Hots? It sure was called Hot. Yeah. Any idea I, what it stands for? Well, in the movie, they claim it stands for Help Out the Seals. No, it's actually, it stands for Honey, O'Hara, Terry, and Sam. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. So, no, I saved the best for last. I just, <laughs> I'd love to do this one. I can't believe this isn't even, this is even an actual movie. Oh, my God. Okay, 1979. A young man invents a robot dog that has super strength, x-ray vision, and can detect crimes before being committed. A greedy businessman tries to steal the invention from him. Jeez, I, I had no idea. <laughs> it's starring Wesley Ewer. Yes, that's the Wesley from Land of the Lost. Valerie Bertinelli and Conrad Bain. Chomps. Chomps? Chomps. It was a movie. All right. It stands, wow. It stands for Canine Home Protection System. Wow. Chomps. All these, like, TV actors made this movie. Wesley Hewer. Oh, my God. I, my, even my, I got my youngest son to watch Land of the Lost, and he likes that. And Conrad Bain was the dad in um, Different Strokes. Ah, okay. Yeah. So they all made this movie. Chomps. <laughs> So bad. Okay, so uh, you did pretty good. You got you got quite a few. I knew more than I did. Ah, and the ones I didn't know fun. was mainly because they're movies I've never seen. So. Yeah. Well, can't blame you. Okay, so uh, next episode, our good friend Greg Martin 
is going to come back and join us. We're going to talk about celebrities that we've personally met before. So we're all going to have a conversation about famous celebrities that we've met. This, this, yeah, this is going to be you. good. I'm sure he's got some yeah. great stories. I was going to say, Greg is a great storyteller, <laughs> and I've known him for a long time, and I've heard a lot of these stories sort of in the moment <laughs> or uh, the day after, and oh my. he! I, I think the biggest problem we're going to have is keeping the censors away and and keeping them to under okay. 45 minutes of discussion because, <laughs> man, oh man. Yeah. Oh, man. So uh, we're looking forward Ooh. to that, and I'm sure we'll have some great fun next week. Oh, it's going to be awesome. As always, I always have fun doing this. If it ain't, if it ain't chomps, it's like having Greg on talking about celebrities is met with these like hor- horrible stories that don't make it past the censors. So it should be good. All right. I'll tell you what, until next week, this is Chris McBrien on behalf of myself and Derek Meyer saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. Thank you.